Hello everybody, welcome to the UK Packers podcast. As usual, I'm your host at Steve Diddy NFL on Twitter and of course follow the group at UK Packers and what a title of this podcast. But before I go and get um, super serious and start sending chills all over the place, uh, let me just say there's a new YouTube video up, 10 Minute Tuesday has returned and it is a UK Packers face mask review. So if you want to see the face masks and see what they look like up close in person, all of the colours, all of the sizes, um, you know, the filter pocket and everything else. Well, then scoot across to youtube.com forward slash UK Packers and you'll see me fashioning and wearing them um, live. So usually I have my jingles and, you know, a bit of comedy, a bit of lightheartedness, uh, some Packers news. But this was something that I stumbled across during the week. Someone on Twitter, I don't know who it was, um put this up and I looked at the tweet and I was like, nah, no, I've never heard of that. That's not a thing. And I looked it up and it's totally a thing. The Packers drafted one of the most notorious serial killers in US history, Randy Woodfield. So I'm going to tell the story of him uh, coming to Green Bay and what he went on to do. Now, from the outset, you know, there's conjecture, there's allegedness all over the place about when uh, Randy Woodfield's crime spree started and there's cold cases that he's been pulled up on and some of that stuff from doing my research for this podcast is really surprising. But one thing uh, that is for sure that I've read about is that there's two very conflicting um, opinions. One from the Packers who, you know, say they don't remember him. Um, those that do remember him and, you know, Cliff Crystal even interviewed him when he was a rookie. Um, you know, not enough that people remember him. He was drafted. He was drafted late by the Packers and he was cut in training camp. So for the Packers, he was effectively a nobody. Uh, he was gone quickly. He ended up playing locally. People say that he did that because he wanted to be recognised by the Packers again and potentially be brought back into the team. Uh, but one thing is for sure that Randy Woodfield himself certainly identifies um, with his past and his past as a Packer. I'll explain that a little bit later. But, and th this is chilling stuff. You know, it's one of these podcasts, after this I'm going to go and have a shower and try wash this podcast off me because it's creepy, it's sordid and a word of warning, it's not suitable for work or to have kids. So if you've got kids in the car or you listen on the way to work or whatever, um, I'm going to spare you the really bad details and I'm going to try to use different words uh, for some crimes um, and you'll kind of get the gist. And on the outset, I have to say, I did research for this and I had timelines in and crimes, quotes, all of these things. And I came across a brilliant article on Sports Illustrated. So if you just type in Randy Woodfield, that article will come up. And then I, I you know, filled in my info with some great content from that article. So that's definitely one to go to if you want to read more um, and you kind of want uh, more detail on it, let's say. I will try skirt around the really bad stuff, but this guy was a heinous, horrible human being and he's still alive and he's still locked up um, and just a terrible, terrible guy. So I can't sugarcoat what he did. Uh, but certainly I can, you know, try spare the grisly details. Anyway, 
he became known as the I-5 killer. You know, they sort of pin murders on him from... He's only been convicted of one, uh, but they pin murders from anywhere between 18 to 44. So we see him as kind of this guy who, you know, middle-class background. Alarm bells started to ring a bit because one thing about Randy Woodfield is is that he has an insane sexual perversion. So from a very young age, he's getting brought up with indecent exposure. Um, and his crimes later on are of an even more heinous nature along those lines. But from a very early age, uh, and there's no way to put it, he was exposing himself to women, the girls. And in fact, he was sent to therapy in high school. Um, and the therapist looked at it and said it was harmless. It was part of being a teenager. He was fine. Um, but we see later on that that's definitely not the case. Um, his high school team at the time kind of brushed over it um, and didn't want to talk about it. And again, he was 18. You know, his crime rap, his, you know, litany of stuff that he got done for was expunged. So when he went to community college and then he went on to play for Portland State, all of the things that he did were kind of, you know, brushed under the rug. They were expunged because he was he was overage. Went on to play for the Portland State Vikings. Apparently was a very good wide receiver, uh, good hands. But there's quotes in the Sports Illustrated article from Ron Stratton. Um, and he himself, a young guy, you know, trying to get on in the job. He was the head coach. He said there was one thing that he said when scouts came up to him. And that was that he was scared of being hit. So one thing that we see... You know, what an awful lot of serial killer is, is this charisma, this obsession with their looks, this narcissism. And certainly that seems to fit the bill with Randy Woodfield. Uh, he was narcissistic to a fault. Um, university described as a good looking guy, he's a handsome fella. Um, but there was, I think the quarterback I read had said that he was more obsessed with his looks and how he looked as opposed to, you know, playing on the field. And they said that that sort of, you know, fear of being hit certainly fit in with his sort of soft-spoken, uh, friendly, and he was, he was deemed to be quiet. Bit of an oddball, um, bit of a loner. And, you know, it's always looked at when, when these guys are brought up as like, oh, it was, no one ever suspected it. What's weird about Randy Woodfield is, is that, you know, for the amount of people that say he was quiet, um, he was unassuming, there's other people on the other side that say he was kind of those things, but you could tell there was something wrong with him. You know, he was off. In some way, he was a little bit odd. One of the quotes was coming up with that he would start these sort of random crazy conversation or statements off the wall. Um, and another thing that he kind of did was he separated himself kind of from the team and he'd always be popping in on the coaches and sort of making friends with the coaches or whatever. So some people are pointing to, you know, what is that that he needed, that guidance and that camaraderie. And certainly football was seen as a reason why he didn't commit even more heinous crimes, that he would have been doing more had he not been preoccupied with football um, so high school indecent exposure he goes to community college um, goes to Portland State he ends up getting arrested a couple of times uh, one of those was for ransacking an ex-girlfriend's house uh, he was found not guilty by lack of evidence that comes in later as well and he gets you know a litany more of indecent exposure raps so by all intents it stated that Green Bay you know unaware of his past which is unlike now where, you know, they know what these guys have for breakfast. They end up drafting him in the 17th round, which is the 428th pick of the 1974 draft. And he's offered a 16 grand contract to play for the year. Um, so to sort of put that into perspective, here's a guy 
he went to Portland State. He was a wide receiver. He was meant to be fairly handy, but he was working in a burger chef restaurant in Oregon, where he was from at the time that he signed. And the roommates and his mates that were interviewed for this article and other ones were saying that it was such a massive deal for him. You know, he was going around telling everybody and they felt that he was under a ton of pressure to try and make it big. So he attended minicamp in Scottsdale, Arizona under coach Dan Devine. And he said to have been, you know, pretty optimistic about making the squad. And we'll see this later on. Um, And not to give you a spoiler alert, but he's cut. But he states that the reason he was cut was is because, you know, they were going more towards the run game and they didn't need his skills. And there's a guy called Fred O'Claire who was interviewed for, I think I believe it's Fox News a couple of years ago on the Mino uh, report. And he was saying that, you know, he was fairly handy. He was fairly good. And he was actually really surprised that he was cut. So, you know, he attends this mini camp in Scottsdale, Arizona. The team send him a first class plane ticket with a limo pickup to bring him to training camp in St. Norbert's and he turns down the ticket and decides to drive up instead. Now, really chillingly, you can go onto YouTube and if you type in Randy Woodfield, you'll see that uh, Fox, or I think it's Fox anyway, that news report comes up and um, Minor goes around interviewing people and the player who, uh, Fred O'Claire, who talks about him, he turned around and said that he got contacted by cold case investigators investigating the murder of a woman in Eau Claire, which would have been en route to camp and fits the timeline of when he was driving up. Apparently she was in, I think she was going to a university in Minnesota. Uh, she was hitching a lift and she was never seen again. So they interviewed him to see if they could get any info to see would Woodfield been involved in that. So the Packers media guide quoted Woodfield as six feet, 170 pounds. They timed him at 4.7 in the 40. They said, cuts on a dime, has good hands and catches well in a crowd, fluid and smooth, hustles and is a good jumper. So he tells friends in Portland that he's doing well. Uh, he, avoided, he avoided earlier cuts. As I said earlier in the podcast, Cliff Crystal interviewed him uh, when he was writing for the Green Bay Press-Gazette and a quote from Ro- uh, Woodfield after they have this scrimmage with the Bears um, in July of 74. He says, quote, I'm pretty excited. I'm just really thankful for the opportunity. So there's various reasons why he was cut. We see that sort of it kind of comes from him is that, you know, they committed to the run game and that he wasn't needed. And then in that Sports Illustrated article, there's something alluded to that's kind of more sinister. But either way, he was cut on August 19th, 1974. So Fred O'Claire, uh, who was the guy that I mentioned earlier, he was staying with Randy Woodfield in St. Norbert's. And so he got cut just before Randy Woodfield. And they bunked together. So he turned around and said to Woodfield, hey, why don't you stay with me and Oshkosh? You can play for the Manitowoc Chiefs, which were a semi-pro team, and you can stick around and play some ball. Why not? Woodfield ended up staying with him. Um, and he hoped that by being close to the Packers that they might see him and sort of re-sign him. Uh, it never happened. And Eau Claire, in that interview on YouTube, refers to him as a bit of a ladies' man, but tells a story about him stealing. Um, and just being generally a little bit odd. So there's no official arrest record in Wisconsin for indecent exposure, but a detective quoted, and this is his quote, he couldn't keep the thing in his pants. So even he says that there are at least 10 cases of an indecent exposure across the state. Um, but Woodfield 
took it really hard that he got cut, headed back to Oregon, and it's reportedly then that his killing spree began. So at the age of 24, you know, he had the opportunity to finish a physical education degree at Portland State. He decided against it and took various other jobs. He used to go down to the college, university, and work out with his old teammates. And there was a coach at the time who saw him, and he was a you know, seemingly friendly chap. Uh, but some of the players come up to him and said, Coach, steer well clear of this fella. He's strange. Mouse Davis was his name. So he avoided him. Um, you know, despite thinking he was kind of nice initially and he looked like an athlete, he stayed away from him uh, from that point on. So early 1975 swings round and Woodfield is arrested on a spate of sexual assaults and robberies and police even led a sting operation where they got female officers uh, to sort of pose as defenseless women and Woodfield went up to one of them with a paring knife uh, which ended up being an undercover female agent and so they nabbed him, arrested him and charged him. Now he blamed steroid use for poor impulse control and he was sentenced to prison and he ended up serving four years um, and being released in 1979. Like, you know, up to this point in austerity details, I mean, these crimes are pretty alarming and pretty heinous. Um, but it didn't stop when he got released. His PSU teammates of throwing him a prison release party. Again, here's a guy, um, super narcissistic after he gets out of prison. He's worked on his body even more while he's in prison, has a muscular physique so much so that he has a propensity of mailing naked pictures of himself to women. And he even sent some to Playgirl magazine and they got back to him and even said that they'd feature him in one of their magazines. However, he was never to make it because in October 1980, Woodfield murdered his first known victim, a woman by the name of Cherie Ayers. So police found her um, sexually assaulted bludgeoned to death in their apartment with knife wounds to her neck. Woodfield had met her at a 10-year high school reunion a couple of weeks earlier and that's how they reconnected and people saw them out and about and so he was initially brought in for questioning but lack of evidence, um, lack of reliable DNA testing, he was released. He went on to murder again two months later. He executed a friend's ex-girlfriend and her boyfriend and was questioned over those murders of Darcy Fix, who was the, the woman, and Doug Altig. But again, released due to lack of evidence, they were in their early 20s. After that, in December of 1980, there was a spate of robberies by a man wearing a fake beard. And some described as either athletic tape or a band-aid over his nose. And only a month later, in January 1981, there was a gruesome sexual assault and murder of Sherry Hull and an assault and attempted murder of Lisa Garcia. Both of these women were cleaners. They were working at night um, in Transamerica uh, offices in Kaiser, Oregon. Um, he'd intended to kill the two of them. Um, he'd shot the two of them in the back of the head after assaulting them. Um, and this was his modus operandi. He would do it execution style. So he would, most of his crimes are of initially a sexual nature, and then he will attempt to execute his victims. And he tried to do that um, to Cherie and Lisa. Cherie, unfortunately, died. Um, but Lisa Garcia survived. She played dead. He left. And then she called the cops. Um, and there's a story of the cop on his way to the office. And he sees an athletic-looking guy 
about a mile away. But he deems that, you know, this guy is too far away from the crime scene, didn't think anything of it. But when he heard Lisa Garcia's description, he was thinking, you know what, that, that could have been him. So after, um, you know, these robberies and uh, everything else, he's nicknamed the I-5 Bandit because his crimes all along the I-5, I mean, he goes from, you know, the bottom of, the bottom sort of, what do we call it, the southwest of America, all the way up the I-5 to Canada. So they nicknamed him the I-5 Bandit at this point because all of his crimes were located, you know, on it or two miles off the interstate exits all the way across the, the West Coast Highway. So in February 1981, his crimes become even more disgusting and heinous. And most of the details I'll spare you. But it resulted in the murder of a 37-year-old woman, Donna Eckhard, and her 14-year-old daughter, Janelle Jarvis. The crime was in between two Again, horrific um, sexual assaults in Reading and in California. Um, if you want any more details on those, again, you can read the articles, but I'm certainly going to spare you. Um, the spree continued. Um, and according to different sources, I mean, this guy racked up, up close to 44 murders, it's alleged. Um, he was eventually caught by homicide detective Dave Komenek. Uh, through witness descriptions, uh, Lisa Garcia played a massive part in that to be able to identify him. But... More so because he'd commit these crimes and then he would go to a payphone within a mile or a couple of miles and make calls. So between the description, uh, between the payphone call logs and that sort of put him close to the crime scenes. And also his photo was picked out from a suspect lineup and then police said, fine, we have enough for a warrant. Uh, they went to his rented accommodation where they found tape that matched what was used to tie up victims during these crimes and also a spent bullet casing in one of his gym bags. So despite, you know, colossal amounts of evidence against Randy Woodfield, um, he still pleaded not guilty in March 1981. So although there was a litany of indictments charged to him, the state of Oregon only charged him with the murder of uh, Sherry Hull, uh, the attempted murder and sexual assault of both women and uh, the attempted murder of Lisa Garcia. And there was a few other crimes as well that I, I won't even mention that were on his, his rap sheet. It comes up as close as 2005 where they've pinned cases, cold cases on Woodfield through the use of DNA forensics, which have got much better. Um, but all districts have decided not to pursue uh, further charges. You know, they put down the cost to the state. Certainly at the time of these crimes, the cost um, to the state of Oregon was too high. Um, also, you know, the DNA evidence at that time wasn't as solid as it is now. And also, they don't want to traumatise the victims that are, you know, survived. Um, and also the families of those victims and the victims who unfortunately lost their lives uh, due to all of these murders. But they did say, if he ever comes up for parole, uh, well, then they will certainly try these cases. So they've kind of put them on notice. So, you know, a mountain of evidence against them, DNA evidence, he's picked out of a lineup. Lisa Garcia stood strong during the trial at the time. But the only real defense that he puts up is mistaken identity. So, you know, he sits there in the witness box um, giving evidence and he's, you know, apparently a shadow of his former self. He's not looking so big and imposing the way the media have sort of made him out to be. He's very soft-spoken. Um, but despite all that, he's convicted after only three and a half hours by the jury. And the sentence is 90 years uh, added on to a life sentence. 
He was 30 years of age when charged. So one thing allegedly remains true about Randy Woodfield, and that is that he is unremorseful. Um, you know, despite these cases being open and shut, that he's a murderer, he's a serial killer, he hasn't shown a shred of empathy or accountability or remorse for his crimes. There was a woman by the name of Anne Rule who wrote a book called The I-5 Killer on Woodfield at the time and she details all of these murder, murders and alleged murders and pulls up all the evidence and it's it's meant to be a really, really good account um, of Randy Woodfield and his, his heinous spree. And when she brought that book out, he tried to sue her for 12 million quid and he ended up losing that case as well. And an interesting backstory, Anne Rule, she's, she's dead now. Um, but an interesting story about Anne Rule was is that she actually worked the charity work with none other than Ted Bundy. And she's on record as saying that, you know, had she been a little bit younger, had her daughters been a little bit older, that she would have seen Ted Bundy as the perfect man for her or for her daughters. So, I mean, if you want to talk about anybody who has some sort of like first-hand knowledge. She wrote a book about Ted Bundy as well. I think it's called The, the Stranger, The Murder Beside Me or Murder Beside Me and The Stranger Beside Me, I think, if you want to look that up. So, I mean, she's came into contact with serial killers who have been touted for narcissism or good looks or charisma, which again is a real bone of contention with people to refer to these monsters as any of those things. So Woodfield as well, I mean, you know, the Packers, he was on the, you know, he was drafted, he was given a contract, he went to training camp, and he was cut. Rightly so, the Packers, I guess, would want nothing to do with this guy. Um, but it doesn't seem that it's reciprocated because Woodfield apparently hauled around, you know, every piece of correspondence that he got from the Packers. He still apparently waxes lyrical to anybody who's going to listen to him about his time playing football and the time that he was, you know, drafted with the Packers and his time, albeit limited, in Green Bay. Um, and, you know, there's stuff in that Sports Illustrated article about how he kept the ticket stub or the, the plane ticket that they sent him to get him to Green Bay. Um, so he had that on him. It's just really sickening and stuff. And at the end of the Sports Illustrated article, as the thing that really strikes me was that Woodfield, although he clammed up, like he'd, he'd talk and wax lyrical about football and all of this type of stuff, but he would clam up completely when you start to get into more of his, um, I don't know, the news report called it a dark side. It's a disgusting serial killer sociopathic, psychopathic, whatever you want to call it, side. Um, and he he wouldn't talk about it. But he created a MySpace page in 2006. And this is how he identifies himself on that page. He said that, I spend the remainder of my days in prison because I have committed a murder along with many other crimes. I once tried out for the Green Bay Packers. The only reason I didn't make it is because the skills I had to offer they didn't need at the time, unquote. So again, this guy thinks that he would have made it based on merit, but only that they went a different direction with play strategy that they didn't keep him around. So at the end of the day, the Packers cut this guy. And, you know, maybe football was his way to keep him out of this type of disgusting behaviour that he had from high school all the way up. But I guess... They don't really know when the spree started. They don't know if being a football player would have kept him out of these urges. Um, according to the articles and the news things, he still doesn't show a shred of remorse. And there was a, tech, a detective quoted that said, if you were to let him out, he would repeat offend. 
um, is that he would go back to his old ways for sure. So a really, really chilling chapter that's associated to the team that we love. Not in any way, you know, linked um, that the Packers didn't know about his background or anything like that. Um, so it's it's really odd to me that, you know, there's such fantastic history, but then you have the likes of this story, which I wasn't aware of. Um, so again, if any further reading, you can just Google his name and some of his um, stuff comes up there. That Sports Illustrated article is absolutely fantastic if you want to check that out as well. It goes into um, a lot of detail on, you know, what type of guy he was, what association that he had with the Packers. You know, there was a Packers scout quoted in the article back in the day who said that he had no idea who he was and he didn't certainly didn't know he was going to be or he was linked to um, all of these murders as the I-5 killer again. The higher number of his of his kills, his murders were up around forty four. The amount of assaults that I've seen, like there's countless assaults, potentially one of the most prolific serial killers uh, in U.S. history. So yeah. Anyway, next week I thought I'd bring you that because it's just it's a weird and crazy, fascinating um, chapter in uh, in history. Um, next week, lighter stuff, but for this week, that's it. You can get me on Twitter. Um, at UK Packers you can follow the group at UK Packers get into the Facebook group as well off season trundles on but so do the uh, podcast and the content thanks for listening thanks for following along and um, hope you're enjoying them uh, do let me know and until next week next week go pack go <laughs>